Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. In the 80s, Marisacci and Josephine Hart were one of London's most illustrious power couples. She was a beloved writer and poet, and he was a world-renowned advertising mogul instrumental in bringing his heroine, Margaret Thatcher, power. For several decades, they enjoyed a blissful marriage until a routine GP appointment led to Josephine's cancer diagnosis. She died 14 months later. Since then, Morris has battled with grief, building a library of her favourite books and for a time eating a breakfast of grapefruit segments at her tomb every day. I spoke to Morris about his new book, well, it's his debut novel, actually, Do Not Resuscitate, The Life and Afterlife of Morris Saatchi, where we join Morris at the gates of heaven as his application for the afterlife is assessed by an eclectic jury composed of the likes of Marilyn Monroe, Pablo Picasso, and, of course, Margaret Thatcher. I started off by asking Morris about that ritual of eating grapefruit by his wife's tomb. Yes, that went on for, um, believe it or not, seven years. And and what would you do when you wandered out into the garden to Josephine's tomb and, and, and sat there with your grapefruit segments? Were you reminiscing or were you actually in the moment talking about the things that were on your mind then that you would have liked to have shared with, with your wife had she been alive? Well, I, I, I had to drive there because the tomb is about it's at the end of the garden, so it's about a mile away. I had built the tomb, which is a, a temple effectively, when Josephine was alive. And underneath the floor is a lead-lined uh, room, which has in it at the moment one coffin and also the place for mine. It's an extraordinary love story, yours and Josephine's, really profoundly moving in, in so many ways. When you try to describe it or articulate it, what do you think it was that created this incredible bond between the two of you? Well, I mean, I, I think the answer is probably something that is well known to everyone, which is that that um, true love, it's instant, isn't it, Mariana? Two eyes meet and then it's basically all over. And in our case, that's exactly what happened. Were you a romantic before you met her? Because you say true love, it's two eyes meet and that's it. But lots of pe- people don't actually get to experience that in their lives or at least, or indeed might experience it briefly and then discover that, <laughs> that their eyes had deceived them. Well, that's true. And I, I, I don't know the answer to that. Um, all relationships are complicated, aren't they, Mariana? I don't think it's easy to maintain a relationship, a, a true love relationship for a long time, not even for a few months or a few years. It's really very hard. Josephine herself described our relationship as um, better than uh, I think anyone could possibly put it. Because in her book, Damage, she made the distinction between lust and erotic obsession. And she said lust is a desire for pleasure and erotic obsession 
is a desire for union. And I think that sums up my relationship with Josephine Hart perfectly. Obviously defined by the latter rather than the former. Um, Yes. You say people, you know, struggle to keep relationships alive and and so on, but you've managed to keep your relationship alive uh, even a decade or more after her death. And in many ways, this this book that you've written, which is a beautiful, beautiful thing, it's I, I don't know if it's a book or a, an artwork in a way. Um, what prompted you to write it? Uh, Do not resuscitate. It's called. What prompted you to write it? It's unlike any kind of memoir or novel and, and and did you feel at all guilty about straying into Josephine's territory? You mean the, the territory of a dead person? <laughs> no I mean the territory no, of an author. After my death I arrived at the gates of heaven and I found that they had have uh, an immigration problem. They have a million asylum seekers a week. It's worse than Heathrow. Queues, overcrowding, delays. And they tried everything to stem the flood. They did everything that you'd expect. ID scans, background checks, facial recognition, fingerprints, x-ray examinations, etc. But nothing worked and the immigrants are still swarming in. There's no stopping them. A million a week. They wish for a better life, you understand. They decided they couldn't let everyone in, every Tom, Dick and Harry, any riffraff. After all, what's the point of heaven if everyone can get in? So the question that this book deals with, and I hope it provides an answer, I hope it reveals the biggest secret of all time, which is why some people go to heaven and others go to hell. Morris, so, let's let, let's talk then. Uh, first of all, if we could, uh, uh, as you've just described, you, the, the welcome to the gates of of heaven has uh, very clear parallels with current discussions about immigration and the migrant crisis. And some of the language you use there uh, was very similar to our Home Secretary Suella Braverman in terms of um, yeah, inflammatory, swarming in. You know, you can't let in every Tom, Dick, and Harry, and so on. Are you being ironic? And do you think that there is a kind of a a dehumanizing impact? Because it it certainly seems to be what you're highlighting at the beginning of the book. I don't mind that. um, If you think there's an allegory there, that certainly wasn't my intention, but I don't mind at all. What this book reveals is who gets in and who doesn't. I think it will help people greatly to know what the answer to that question is. What I found very interesting in, in researching all this is that the the gospels are not clear sins well what sins remorse how faith in what so what they decided the immigration authorities is that they wanted full disclosure full transparency no cover-up and their wish was that if people were provided with more information about what actually happens at the arrival gates that could reduce the stream of hopeless applicants. That's what I explained. Morris, you are way too clever and sophisticated to dodge your own allegory, um, which is very present uh, in the book, I think, here in terms of all kinds of things, talking about cover-ups, talking about full disclosure, and uh, I think very much presenting a picture, very cleverly, of what a person might face coming to a, a country like the UK or indeed anywhere, to be honest, that, that people flee to. Uh, and you do seem to be displaying some sympathy for those who find themselves displaced, perhaps more sympathy than the conservatives that you've supported all your life. I don't mind that, Mariella. I'm not trying to duck that. I'm trying to, I'm trying to hear say to people, 
if you want to enter and be admitted into heaven and not go to hell, this is what's required. What this is saying is that there, there should be, this is what they decided, the immigration authorities, people should know more. People should be given more information about what exactly makes the difference between somebody who goes to heaven and somebody who goes to hell. Early on in the book, you, you do specify that people who are going to be in or out of heaven. Uh, c- can you um, explain some of the characteristics required for innies? Let me explain how I was able to know what the rules are. For all, for just because what, what I just said, which is that the, the source you'd normally go to, which would be the Gospels, following many conversations with serious people in the Church of England, the Gospels, they will agree that the Gospels are not clear and that it would help people if they were more clear. They decided that they had to have a plan. They had to control the million asylum seekers a week. They couldn't let everyone in. And so there had to be a, a plan. And the plan that they arrived at is that they remembered that Jesus Christ himself achieved the greatest legacy in human history after a show trial for Pontius Pilate. So they decided to stage a show trial of their own, like no other. And all they needed was a defendant. And I was the chosen one. You're quite and harsh on yourself um, uh, when you're on trial in the book. Do you believe any of the criticism you level uh, against yourself? Uh, Obviously, a long life. uh, You've done many things with it. What are the things that you sort of held up as as evidence for the defence, as it were, if if theirs was a prosecution? Well, the prosecution, uh, uh, you're right, is extremely uh, vicious and brutal and does demolish my life completely in all aspects. You've seen it. It's, it's, It's murderous. Yeah, one of the key criticisms that, that, that the prosecutor holds against you is your involvement in the birth of negative campaigning. And funnily enough, I was just reading a, a quote this morning from, from Donald Trump talking about, you know, if Ron DeSantis runs, I will tell you things about him that won't be very flattering. Now, that certainly doesn't uh, live up to your exacting standards in terms of a kind of catchy phrase. But it does indicate that the level to which negative campaigning has ascended, uh, if you will. Uh, do you see that as one of the one of your greatest crimes against humanity? No, I don't. And I, 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 I'll tell you exactly how I, how I do defend myself. It is true that Professor David Butler, you remember him, the, 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 the author of the Butler and Kavanagh series on the British general elections, mm-hmm. he did say to me himself, flat out to my face, you, Maurice Saatchi, are personally responsible for reducing all British general elections to negative campaigning. David Butler is quoted by the prosecution in order to demonize um, what I had done. But I can, give you, I can give you my answer, which is what I gave in, in court um, to the jury, which is that politics is an adversarial activity. You will either hit or be hit. And it is exactly the same as being in the ring, in a boxing ring, which is that somebody has punched you in the face and you're bleeding badly. And there's only one thing to do now, which is to land a blow on your opponent's chin, which knocks him out. That is how that is how politics works. If one is not prepared for that, one will be too weak for this world. And there is a marvelous um, saying, when the camel kneels, the knives go in. So it's not possible to make any progress in politics unless you have that 
understanding. Indeed, and I, I don't think anyone would, would, would argue with you about the fact that you have, to, you have to be prepared for sort of adversarial combat and that you need to be strong and able to uh, withstand the, the knives as the camel kneels, as, as, as you put it. But what about the, the sort of soundbite nature of it? What about, you know, your brilliant slogan, Labour isn't working, and, and the way that that was then employed later for, for things like Brexit. How did, how did you feel about the evolution of reducing what should be? And I think you'd be the first person to say, you know, that we need big discussions, big ideas. We need to pursue the impossible when it comes to politics. But if you can't put it into a three-word slogan uh, nowadays, it's, it's, it's much, much harder to get any idea across. I mean, it was almost like you preempted the idea of social media, you know, where there's no room for too many words. Well, I, I, again, I mean, that's exactly the accusation that the prosecution makes. It, I, I defended myself as sincerely as I possibly can, which is that I'm not comparing politics to poetry, but in the sense that the definition of poetry is the only possible words in the only possible order. That's the best definition I know. Of. So all of the great changes in the world, maybe that's an overstatement, but anyway, the most powerful rallying cries, let's put it that way, are simple and to the point, here are some examples for you, Mariella. Your country needs you. No taxation without representation. One man, one vote. There wasn't anything complicated about liberté, égalité, fraternité. And nobody had to explain what it meant when they read on the Statue of Liberty the inscription. Give me your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. And when they heard, go west, young man, they did. I don't think it's irrelevant that the average length of the Ten Commandments is seven words. Do you think condensing something uh, with that sort of brevity uh, actually is an exercise in honing what your real message is? And and if that's the case, to what extent do you think the Conservative Party at the moment needs a rebrand? Because I would struggle very, very hard to condense the, the messaging at the moment. I'm going to answer your question directly, Mariana, <laughs> and I'm very happy to do it. The only thing I wanted to add in relation to this book is that there was a there was a jury at my trial, and I'll tell you who they were. Your listeners may be interested. But made up of some very distinguished a, people, all deceased. Yes, I mean, they, that's just a cross-section. I mean, that's how you choose a jury, isn't it? The cross-section of the immortal community. So in my case, the jury that they appointed was Marilyn Monroe, Stephen Hawking, Abraham Lincoln, Winston Churchill, Pablo Picasso, Albert Einstein, Alfred Hitchcock, Mao, Gandhi, John F. Kennedy, and Martin Luther King. Who did you feel was most sympathetic? I mean, these people don't speak on the jury. You have no idea. You can tell from the eyes. (laughs) From the eyes, yeah. I was given a a task to perform, and I was asked to keep a record, uh, a transcript of my trial. That's what they asked me to do, which is what I did. So you see, Mariella, I didn't write this book. It is attributed to me as the author, but I was just a journalist, a humble court reporter. Mariela, I was told to share the verdict with the world to reveal the greatest secret of all time to help people. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. So going back to the Conservatives needing a, a slogan or not, you might disagree. Mm. You know, you wants to find the Conservatives as efficient but cruel and, and Labour as caring but incompetent. But it seems that you could kind of mix those up for both parties at the moment. It would be very difficult to, to keep it to the two. What I said about that was that you could understand all of British politics in two sentences. Conservatives are efficient but cruel. Labour is caring but incompetent. And if the position was to arise, which many people would argue it has, that the Conservative Party is not seen as efficient and isn't then seen as inefficient, well, that leaves the Conservative Party as inefficient and cruel. And if, let's talk about Labour, if Labour had the brains which I'm not sure they do, but maybe they do. If they had the brains to make themselves, instead of caring and incompetent, to make themselves caring and competent, you would now have conservatives are inefficient and cruel. Labour is caring and competent. If the Conservative Party may already have done itself damage in terms of efficiency, for sure. If Labour had the brains, which again, I, I say to you, Marielle, I don't know. I don't know these people. I don't know if they have the brains to turn what is now their reputation for incompetence into a reputation of competence. If that could happen, if the Conservatives are inefficient and cruel and Labour is caring and competent, you would have the biggest landslide of a generation. And that's not impossible to imagine. What if you lobbed the word caring into conservatism? Because that seems to me very much to have been part of the sort of underpinning of your conservative values over the years. You, you argued quite vehemently for poor people to be taken out of the, the, the tax system and so on. And, and, and those would seem to be values that, you know, still split the Conservative Party in half, uh, or even, or even smaller uh, fractions. Do you think that it's a problem for the Conservatives to be seen as caring? Because right now, I think a lot of people feel like they need caring for. I understand completely, and the reason that the the reason that the Conservative Party would be regarded as cruel is because it would be regarded as being obsessed with money. And that would be that would be the basis of people saying that the Conservative Party is cruel, and that's. That's absolutely fundamental. The point you're making, Mariela, is terribly important. And this, I, I must stress for your listeners, that going back to what you were saying to me before about these very short... Pithy slogans. Or mm. sentences. All right, mm. call them slogans. But those slogans, they don't come from nowhere. They don't come out of um, somebody dreaming up a slogan. They, they, to be effective, they have to come from deep belief. They can't come out of thin air. They won't work coming out of thin air. 
one man, one vote did not come out of thin air. That came from an entire philosophy. And so far as the Conservative Party is concerned, it's, let's just talk about that. If cruel, if cruel means obsessed with money, which I'm suggesting that it does, then whereas the caring person has other values other than money. But one of the things which Mrs. Thatcher, um, who I obviously adored, not everyone did, but I certainly did, and she changed my life completely. So I owe her a tremendous amount. But she very much liked the story of the Good Samaritan because it shows that first you need the money to do the good works. This is something which um, requires explanation. And obviously, she was able to do that. What I suppose I'm putting to Mariella is that this is not the present situation of the Conservative Party is not a policy problem. It's an intellectual problem. Somebody has to work that out. And I think it's, it's quite hard to, it's quite hard to do. It's an intellectual problem in, in in terms of the scope of the vision for what the Conservative Party represents, or or or, or am I am I making am I making am oversimplifying no. it? No, you're not, because you're you're exactly you're exactly to the point. Um, this is absolutely this is so crucial. This is the absolute central issue. If you want to regard the Conservative Party as cruel, you would regard them as being uncaring. Let's say about inequality that there's rich people who are very rich and there's staggering amounts of inequality, which is almost impossible to believe, the, the different levels of, of inequality, different levels of equality that exist now. The inequality that ex- is, exists now is absolutely shocking and outrageous. Now, what is the Conservative Party supposed to do about that in order not to be regarded as um, only interested in money? I'll tell you about the most wonderful view of this that you could possibly get, which is from one of my jury members. Martin Luther King, he put it so starkly and so brilliantly. He said, it is a cruel jest to say to a bootless man that he ought to lift himself by his own bootstraps. In other words, the Conservative Party should be, and I believe is, that's why I have supported the Conservative Party for my entire life, ought to be the party that can address inequality about money. Money is supposed to be a conservative expertise about which one is not ashamed but in order, to, in order to explain that one's interest in money is not cruelty, it, the interest in money would have to be directed at reducing inequality. I think the Conservative Party is more able, more likely to be able to do that than the Labour Party. But that's, that's a lifelong held view. And not at the moment, by the looks of things. I mean, there are those who would uh, attribute the situation we find ourselves in now with these, you know, extremities of, of, of rich and poor and indeed, you know, the sort of rampant free market to Margaret Thatcher's policies. I know that, that, that you were a, a big fan and, and friend of hers. Do you think that she envisaged the world we find ourselves in now, though, with these huge global corporations controlling sort of almost everything and, and and in many ways that freedom of the market that she envisaged i would say is slightly restricted by them by their presence i totally agree and she did not envisage what the the current situation which is that most industries are now giant cartels of giant global corporations she did not envisage that and neither did i when when such and such was i hope a significant proponent of globalization when globalization was thought to be um, just a sort of searchy new business trick at the time, but I didn't. I didn't um, see what's happened at all, and neither did she. She came to lunch after she left Downing Street, and I asked her if she knew the share of the top five banks 
in Britain in all financial transactions, loans, mortgages, credit cards, insurance, everything. She said she didn't know. I told her it was 80%. She said with her eyes blazing as they could, it's impossible. She didn't mean, Mariella, that wasn't true. She meant it was intolerable. So something, as you were just, I think, suggesting, something has gone wrong with Mrs. Thatcher's idea of the free market. It was meant to be a perpetual referendum. People cast their vote every day, and from the competition to win their votes, better products and services emerge. That's what the free market is. That's what it's meant to be. But unfortunately, it hasn't worked out like that, Mariella, which is what you were just hinting at. The free market has been taken over in ways that she did not envisage, and neither did I, by cartels of giant global corporations, so that there is now a huge imbalance of power between the individual customer and the global corporation. So, so much so, uh, I'm agreeing with you so strongly that you could argue, and maybe I would, that big companies are now worse than big government, because at least with big government, um, you can change the boss every now and again. But with these companies, you wouldn't know where to begin. For example, have you ever tried calling BT? <laughs> yes, I have. Or, <laughs> yeah, or, or Vodafone or UK Power Networks. Well, I have, Mariela, and I timed it. It takes longer to get through to BT than number 10. Vodafone takes longer than the White House. UK Power Networks takes longer than the UK Parliament. And here comes the best bit of all, Mariella, which is while you wait to speak to these companies, you pay. And the longer the delay with you on the phone, the bigger their profit. I want to bring you back before I let you go, Morris, and I must let you mm. go, um, to your book. The sure. novelist um, and writer, intellectual Julian Barnes, uh, has also written very movingly about loss in the past. And, and, and he was very perturbed by this notion of moving on. And I think in, in many ways you sort of echo his sentiments on that, which is why do people say, you know, well, you must move on. And, and you have, in fact, steadfastly refused to, in many ways, move on from the loss of, of your wife, Josephine Hart. Uh, she once wrote, we learn from tragedy slowly. Is the book the sum of what you've learned? And, and, and do you think you've learned anything of value from her passing that in any way mitigates the loss? Definitely. And that's what this, that's what this book is about. And I owe, I owe that uh, revelation, which I, I'm, I'm happy to call it a revelation, to the Dean of Westminster, um, Dr. John Hall. It's he who allowed Josephine Hart to have her memorial, what was going to be in Poets' Corner, but then it became very big and took over half, took over the nave of the abbey. And afterwards, I asked him some, if I could be allowed to ask him some schoolboy questions, of which the main one is, do you actually believe that all these dead people, do you really seriously yourself believe, putting aside all the sermons in Westminster Abbey, all your lectures, all your books, do you yourself actually believe all these dead people are really there and that you will be reunited with your loved one? Do you actually believe that, that they're there? And his answer was, I'm certain of it. Now, Mariela, so am I. 